You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. James, uh, good to see some of you back. Um, I was a little surprised, actually. Um, I, this is the second of our little two-part series. Last week, I got to talk about godly living in a political age, and so I'm, I'm glad to see that you have uh, decided to return. Today, we're going to be talking about godly living in a technological age, uh, but before we get into that, um, I'm the dean of Canby Bible College. I'm a pastor on staff here at Canby Foursquare Church. Uh, one of the resources that we have for you at CBC uh, is something that we just started this year, which uh, you might be surprised is a, is a podcast, calling it The Curiosity Project. Uh, basically, it's me sitting down with as high a quality leaders as who will return my phone calls, and I'm going to interview them um, and talk about life and leadership and ministry, and so it's a lot of fun. You can find it on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple and Google and Spotify. So if you're in the car this week, uh, maybe check that out. Uh, I mentioned we are concluding this little two-part series last week, Godly Living in a Political Age, now godly living in a technological age. Uh, Last week, I encouraged us to observe the way that our tribal identities may prevent us from being able to go outside of our circles to encounter other people with curiosity and empathy and humility. I also encouraged older folks to stop watching Fox News. Um, This week, I'm encouraging uh, younger folks to stop using Instagram. Um, So obviously, I have no idea how to run a church because that's just not the way you do things. We're going to be looking at how technology uh, shapes and influences the way we see ourselves, others, and Jesus this morning. Um, As always, if you know me, we like to condense things into a nutshell. Uh, This is your little tool to help you understand what we talked about at church today. And today's sermon in a nutshell is, for the sake of your health and God's mission, observe the way that your technology is shaping you. So for the sake of your health and God's mission, observe the way that your technology is shaping you. Let's pray. If you've got a Bible, our text this morning will be Galatians chapter 5. Oh, Lord, help us as we are participants in your kingdom, wanting to do the best we can with what we've got each day. So, Lord, help us to be more self-aware, to be more disciplined, and to be more engaged in the world around us. We love you. We need you very much. Lord, help me to speak with clarity and truth and grace this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, um, please don't get me wrong. This is not going to be one of those get off my porch, I'm an old man, I'm going to rant about technology kind of sermons. I actually really, really love technology. I think it's been responsible for many of the greatest advancements that we've seen in human history. I mean, we, we know more, we see more, we engage with more than it ever before. We're living longer, safer, more fulfilled, more engaged lives than almost ever before. And I don't want to underestimate this because I think it's quite important. Car rides have become much more fun. I grew up in rural Alaska as a relatively poor child, and so the family car at the time was a 1979 Jeep Grand Cherokee. And if you can't picture that in your head, just imagine the pictures of cars you would draw as a child. Side profile, two wheels, a small box for the engine compartment, a larger box for everything else. That was this car. It came with the safety package marked, we'll hope for the best. 
And so as a kid, by the time I got into the back seat of this thing, it was already 10 or 15 years old, and all of the speakers in the car had died except for the one in the front by the driver, which was probably good because the only thing my parents listened to was the same Michael W. Smith cassette tape, I think my entire childhood. And so we would be driving to Anchorage five hours away, and here I was as a seven-year-old with my face just kind of plastered against the cold interior window because there was no heat that could come back that far in a car like that, and I was just supposed to be okay with this whole arrangement. I was bored, and that was it, and there was no other options. And now, fast forward 30 years, and I get to drive around in the pinnacle of human engineering around transportation in a car most stylish and comfortable. I'm speaking, of course, of the minivan. (laughs) If you don't think minivans are cool, meet me in the parking lot later. I'll fight you. Minivans are so awesome, and my minivan is so cool because my phone has a special Google robot inside of it, and I can talk to it with my voice, and I can say, find me and play me a song, and the Google robot will go talk to the Spotify robot. They'll find the exact song I was thinking of just moments ago, and then they'll send that song to the Bluetooth robot that will then beam that magical song to all 12 speakers of my stylish and comfortable minivan. And every single car ride is a mobile jam session. I'm having so much fun, all because of technology, and my children don't even know the difference. My children are so used to engaging with technology, they're already very comfortable talking to robots. A couple of days ago, I could not remember whether or not a shark was a mammal or a fish. Okay, don't judge me, all right? I have a, I have a college degree, but it's not in biology. I shout across my living room, hey, Google, is a shark a mammal or a fish? The website says that a shark is a fish. Hey, thanks, Google. I love a lot about technology. In fact, it's helping us live much safer and more healthy lives. I don't know if you guys know this, but we used to die of smallpox a lot. I didn't know much about smallpox, except for I knew that we had gotten rid of it. If you want to ruin your day, go look at the Wikipedia page for smallpox. Every 30% of the people who got smallpox died, the rest went blind. And what did we do? And this was half a million cases a year as early as like 1950. People were dying of smallpox. And what happened? Science and technology came along, and what did we do? We got rid of a terrible deadly disease. Like, this is amazing. Go science, go technology, go vaccines. In fact, not only that, you have any idea how lucky you are to be living now in 2019? If you had been born just 200 years prior, which is like that in the scope of human history, if you had been born in 1819, your life expectancy would be 35. I'm 35. I'd be dead by now in 1819. And here I am looking forward to probably 60 more years. And what accounts for this incredible, almost tripling in the rate of life expectancy across the entire globe? Science, technology, vaccines. Like we are blessed beyond measure. However, we're also stepping into what feels like very unfamiliar territory. Because for most of human history, human progress has looked a little bit like this, relatively slow and relatively gradual, where one year and one decade looked a lot like the one that came before. They say, they estimate like the, all the knowledge that human beings have, it would double every hundred years in the year 1900. 
By the year 1950, it was doubling every 25 years. By the year 2000, it was doubling every year. By the year 2020, it's doubling every 12 hours. The amount, so what that means is that now going forward, we're looking at something like this, where the future that especially my children will have They'll have jobs that have not been invented yet around technology that we cannot conceive of in careers that do not even exist in this moment. And so the amount of fear, perhaps, the amount of uncertainty, the amount of um, change that's happening because of the rise of technology in our world is unprecedented. And so I want to take this moment to try to figure out if there's anything that we can do to try to come towards a kind of biblical and thoughtful vision of what it means to be kind of living as a godly Christians, faithful disciples, in a technological age. This is the key question. How can we be faithful disciples of Christ in a technology-driven and technology-addicted age? So, um, naturally, I went to the Bible this week, and I looked for all of the passages that addressed binge-watching Netflix, and I looked real hard, and I'm here to tell you that based on my research, there are none I don't know that comes as a shock, but here we come up against a kind of recurring issue in the Christian life. The Bible is an old book. How do we take principles from an old book and apply them to very present and modern situations? And this is a challenge. I want to stop here just for a moment and give you a brief aside about Scripture because Scripture is not merely a collection of advice about any given subject. Like you just can't punch in dating or career advice into the Bible and we'll spit back a whole bunch of verses that will somehow make sense for you. We're going to the Bible in that sense with the wrong ideas in mind. It's useful to remember that the Bible is both one book but also 66 books, so it's an anthology, but there's a thread that runs through it about God's redemptive power starting in Genesis, moving through the people of Israel, now into Christ, and now encompassing the whole world in which he regains that which was lost in the garden, which is a meaningful and fulfilling, restored and redeemed relationship with all of humanity and the created order. And so the whole Bible is about the redemption of the world through Christ Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not even written especially to us. Paul, in the New Testament, wasn't thinking about us 2,000 years on trying to understand what he was saying. He was writing to a particular people at a particular time, facing particular challenges. And so when we now read those letters, we're like strangers in a strange land. We're reading someone else's mail. We're hearing one side of a conversation. And so there are many things about Scripture that will probably confuse and confound us. There will be some things about Scripture that probably offend you. And that's in part because it wasn't written for you in that particular definite sense. And so if we try to apply kind of our modern versions of modern expectations about what a book is and how it's supposed to function to us, the reader, we're going to be disappointed when trying to travel back and understand Scripture. So let me just give you three, this is not the sermon, but let me just give you three real quick things about Scripture. First, I want you to be patient with Scripture. If you're reading through the Bible and you don't understand something, take a pencil and write a question mark in the margin and then move on. Um, this will be helpful because, one, it, you will have a note, like, I didn't understand what that meant. I was doing this recently with the book of Leviticus. There are so many questions I have about the book of Leviticus, okay? The point is, is that I want you to be patient with Scripture, okay? Because, again, it's a, it's a book written in a different age for a different set of issues than the ones that we're faced with immediately. So, that doesn't mean that there's a problem with you, and it doesn't mean that there's a problem with the text. It just means that the two of you haven't learned how to understand each other yet, but give it some time, and over time that you will. The second thing I want you to do is to be humble with Scripture, meaning 
that if we go to it thinking the Bible's job is to tell me how to live my life at every turn, then we're going to be disappointed. The Bible is God's story, not ours, right? And so we want to make sure that we're taking the right view here, okay? This God's gift to us to let us know about Him primarily and us secondarily. So let's not flip that around. We've often said that God has made man in our own image. Let's be careful not to return the favor by reading into Scripture only what we want about God and not allowing it to confront and challenge us at various times. And then also here, I want you to be charitable with Scripture. This just means give Scripture some grace. Sometimes you don't understand it. Sometimes it seems offensive. Sometimes that's like, that's not the way that I would choose to do things if I was in charge. That's okay. Just be gracious with Scripture and give it time and seasons. All right, back to what we're actually talking about. Oh, here's this. It raises the question. So what do you do with Scripture when you're trying to deal or think about issues around which the Bible obviously doesn't say anything about, like Netflix or iPhones? What we want to find is principles present in the Word that are going to guide and direct our lives as a faithful disciples. These are the timeless principles that we understand, okay? And then I want you to add a generous dash of discernment. I want you to add a pinch of wisdom and common sense and then a whole splash of humility. And I want you to let them sit and let those flavors get to know each other for a while. You're making a stew here. And then you're going to say, God, you're going to ask God, God, I'm trying to find some wisdom and discernment in my life about how I utilize my technology, Your Bible doesn't say anything in particular about this, but I think this is what I want to come to. What do you think? And then you listen, and you trust that God has some words for you. So that's one of the ways that we want to try to help Scripture pull us into the front. So, And that's why, in particular, in case you're wondering, is the upshot of this that I'm just going to tell you to, like, delete your Netflix account and cancel Instagram? No, I can't sell you that because the Bible doesn't tell you that. That's a decision that you need to sort out between you and Jesus. This is where discernment and walking by the Spirit comes into play. So I'm not going to stand up here and all legalistic and say, no, technology is bad for you. It's creating addictions that you, you know, are overtaking your life. It may or it may not. And so you need to have that discernment. But you need to think about that with the Spirit. We're not here about legalism. So Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, we're going to camp out here in Galatians chapter 5. And if you were here last week when I started in Romans chapter 12, I then took the previous, the next five minutes to explain everything that was happening in Romans 1 through 11 so that you could understand what's happening. In Romans 12, if you're hoping for me to do that little part of the trick again for Galatians, you've come to the wrong place. I'm not that smart. You're going to be disappointed. But, as always, context is a little key. So here's a little thing that you need to know about the book of Galatians. Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote Romans, and it was written to this region of churches. Galatia is a region, not a city. And so it was a bunch of churches that he had planted, and he went there and he told them, these are mostly some Jewish but also Gentile, non-Jewish people, and they said that in Jesus you have redemption for your sins. The gospel that I preach is faith alone, faith, nothing more, nothing less. These people responded with great joy and great obedience. They fell into the gospel with great grace and love, and Paul was very happy. He loved these people a lot, but he's, he's an apostle. He wants to go and preach the gospel in other places, and so he sets up elders and pastors in every community, and then he heads them off. Now, so far so good. Everything's going well until there's this other group of people. They were called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers, these bad guys, their agenda was is that they wanted to come into these places where Paul had been preaching the gospel of faith in Christ alone. And their whole thing was, is like, well, okay, that's fine, except for, except, except, except for 
You've got to become Jewish first in order to accept the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Okay, so imagine this, okay? So here I am as a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, okay? And Paul tells me that I can access Christ here by faith alone, and that's it. And I'm fully accepted and part of the child of God. The Judaizer comes in, he says, oh, you Gentile, actually what you need to do is you need to take this step first into Judaism, so circumcision, law-keeping, dietary laws, the whole meal, okay? And then you can have Jesus as your Messiah. Paul hears about this, and he's angry. Friends, he's so angry. Read the book of Galatians and listen for Paul's tone. He's flat out. He's so, he's, in fact, he's so angry, he says something that's actually incredibly offensive and rude. We'll get to it in just a second. So, um, so what does he do? So he comes back, and so the, the Galatians is the response to this little heresy that's forming in these churches that he had about why the gospel is in Christ alone, by faith alone, accessed because of God's grace alone, and not because of anything that you do, and it's certainly not because of circumcision, it's certainly not because of law-keeping. Okay, so this is what he does. He's so angry with this whole business all of these people who are advocating for circumcision, you can look this up, I'm not making this up. He, he says, sorry, this is Galatians 5.12. He says, I wish the people who were advocating for circumcision would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> like, whoa, that's one dude hoping another dude chops his manhood off and that's in the Bible. <laughs> like, like, okay, wild, we're gonna move on. That's not what the sermon's about today. <clears throat> just want you to know that it's in there just because... All right, this raises some interesting questions. If the Old Testament law is no longer binding upon us now as believers who are faithful followers of Christ, then what is the metrics, what are the standards by which we are to live? If the Old Testament law is no longer, is no longer the thing. And this is where Paul steps in. And Paul, he loves, he loves his lists. Okay, he's going to tell us. The first thing he says is, I want you to walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, this is his thesis statement, and I want you to watch the way that the two parts of this sentence connect to each other. He has two kind of injunctions. He says, first, walk by the Spirit, and don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. Now, um, notice here that the one means the other. So if you don't want to gratify the desires of the Spirit, or the desires of the flesh, Paul says, I want you to walk by the Spirit. Okay? By doing the one, you will naturally do the other. And this is actually a really key insight whenever you're dealing with trying to move away from a destructive habit. If your objective is to simply stop doing the thing that you consider destructive, not, desi- not gratify the desires of the flesh, you're going about it a little bit backwards. Paul says, I, instead of trying to focus away from that, focus towards what it means to walk in the Spirit. When you're walking in the Spirit, then a natural consequence will be that the desires of the flesh will no longer have a strong of a pull on you. And so that's a really key thing. So willpower is not a sufficient mechanism to try to kick something negative. You need to replace it first with the positive thing, the walking in the flesh, and then that expands to fill the space that the desires of the flesh used to occupy in your life, and they gradually get pushed out. Okay. Now, um, what in the world does Paul mean by walk in the Spirit? Imagine if you were up here and you were just a whole bunch of like fifth grade kids, and I was like, all right, kids, today's message is walk in the Spirit. Like, 
cool, dude, but that's not helpful. Like, we don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what that means. I can kind of guess what gratifying the desires of the flesh are, but you're dealing with the general, okay? And this is what I love about Paul. He's a good preacher. He doesn't stay stuck in the area of the ambiguous, the nebulous, the cloudy, or the aspirational. So now he's going to drag us down into the granular and the nitty-gritty by giving us this following list. I've just condensed it into a bullet point. Here are the desires of the flesh that he's thinking about now. First thing he says is sexual immorality, impurity and sensuality, idolatry and sorcery, enmity, that's a fancy word for hate or anger, and strife. Uh, Does he keep going? (laughs) Yes, he does. Jealousy, um, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, that's the divisions that are caused between two like-minded groups, and divisions. Does have you have anything else for us? You bet he does. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he wraps it all up with just things like these. Okay, just, just whatever else. Because you know there's somebody out there who's like, well, you've given me 14 things not to do, but I've got a 15th. And so Paul does it. Okay, now if you're interested in looking, Paul, again, remember I said Paul loves his list. If you go back and you cross-check Romans 1, Paul gives you a list, I think, of about 27 other vices that he says are not consistent with what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So this is certainly not meant to be exclusive or comprehensive, but it does point us towards a direction that says that life within the kingdom of God is lived a particular way by the Spirit, and these things are antithetical to it. All right, well, that's given us... um, at least a negative example of what that means. And this is, this is, again, kind of one of the dangers of legalism. The danger of legalism is that your status as a quote-unquote good Christian is largely defined by how you appear in the eyes of other people, the gatekeepers of your tribe or your church community. And so you'll get in favor if you just don't do certain things. There was a phrase when I was growing up that says, you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with the girls who do. I I don't know what they told the girls, but I... (laughs) The challenge with that kind of reductionist morality is what? Well, you're only defining yourself by what you're against. You have no vision for what actually being led by the Spirit looks like, okay? And this is what I love about Paul. Paul's not just some contrarian grandfather, you know, punisher who's like, I'm looking at all of you guys and I'm finding out all of your sins. Stop doing these things. Okay, that's legalism. Legalism says, find a list and check the list. And just a quick thing here on legalism because I care so much about the difference between the legalism and the gospel. Okay, there will be a couple of people, there will be some people, and I was like this kid because I was a good kid. I was a really good kid. My brother was the bad kid, so I decided I'm going to do the opposite of what my brother does, and that worked out really well for me until I realized that I was so full of pride and self-centeredness that I was just as guilty as all of the dumb things that my brother was doing. Okay? So, if you're really good, you'll end up like me, which is proud. proud. You'll be like that Pharisee. I thank God that I am not like that sinner. You'll be so self-absorbed with your own goodness and your own rightness, and you'll judge other people by the standards of rightness that you can appeal to, happily ignoring those areas where you still stumble. But those aren't really big things because, honestly, you're just so good. And those other people are actually kind of terrible. I don't know why they don't have their lives together the way that I have my life together. Thank you, Jesus, that I am so good. You're lucky to have me, Lord. 
you'll end up there. You'll end up there in this vat of acidic pride, or you will end up in a place where you'll constantly be feeling guilty because you're, you're abiding by a standard that you just cannot, it's like, a, it's like climbing a muddy slope. You'll get there and then you'll just slide back down and then you'll try super hard again. And you're like, this time is the time that I'm really going to show them that I really love Jesus. And I'm going to put my all into it. And then you just slide back into this pit. And so you're constantly feeling like God hates you or God is disappointed with you or that you're no good. And so you can either choose pride or you can choose self-loathing because those are the only two options that you get inside legalism. But if you choose the gospel, if you choose the gospel and you say that my life is hidden and found in Christ and that he has rescued me when I did not deserve it for nothing having to do with myself, and I am confident that my position as a child of God is not dependent upon my ability to check lists off, but rather to walk in step with the Spirit and to desire the great things of God, that I know that the one who has begun a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day that he returns. And until that day that I am finally and fully saved and I see the face of my Creator and my Savior, that I'm going to trust that I can walk by the Spirit on a daily basis with discernment and joy. Now, you will feel... No, it doesn't mean that you now have license to do these things. Paul was constantly being accused of giving people license to go do stupid stuff and read Romans 6. That's not the case. But it means is that now you're operating from God's great love, acceptance, and forgiveness, not trying to achieve it through your behavior. And that's the difference between legalism and the gospel. All right, so let's look back here. Okay, that was a brief aside. Moving on. Paul's next paragraph looks like this. Now I'm going to show you what the right way to live is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Watch this. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I love that that phrase, that verb right there is in the past tense, completed. I don't feel like I've done it. Guess what? By having faith in Christ, it's already done. The power of sin is broken in your life. Okay? Now, this list here is really familiar to it. We know it now as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about that list. Then think about the list we just saw. Dissensions, divisions, enmity, strife, gossip, disrespect. And then pass those two lists through your technology use. Does the way that I engage with technology engender this set of characteristics and behaviors, or does it do the other? And that's the question that I'm going to leave to you. I, I can't answer it for you. But when we think about the principles of what defines the kingdom of God and how we want to pull those through into 2019, I want to be the kind of person that uses all of the discretionary time that I have where my attention goes, where my time goes, where the thing that I do when I don't have to do anything else, where that goes, is it, is it building towards this set of characteristics? Paul concludes this little sentence by saying this. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Is the way that you use social media creating conceit and self-centeredness in your life? Instagram is toying with the idea of removing the number of likes that each post receives on its public platforms because they are finding that people are doing 
uh, dangerous, sometimes deadly things in order to get a photo that allows other people to like it. That's an example of conceit. Provoking one another. Is the stuff that you share on Facebook stuff that builds up peace with people who don't believe the same way that you do? Now, this was something that we touched a little bit on last week when we dealt with godly living in a political age, but let me just touch on it again here briefly. Um, They did some studies after the 2012 election. They did some exit polling, and they asked a couple of questions. One, do you go to church? About 12% of the people who voted in that election said, no, I don't go to church. These are the nuns that you've probably heard about, people who just don't have any religious affiliation at all. And then they asked, well, did you vote for a Democratic or Republican candidate? And the vast majority of those nuns voted Democratic. So we know from that that most people, if they don't attend church, they are likely more Democratic in their leanings. Now, you probably know some of these people. You're friends with them on Facebook. What is the impact of your posting highly, if you will, in this context, highly Republican and partisan posts or sharing them or liking them? Because you know how the algorithm shows up. So-and-so liked this post. I'm like, why am I seeing this? Because somebody's cousin's barber that I'm somehow friends with liked it, and this is what I'm looking at right now. Okay, How does that shape their impression of what's going on? Does that make sense? So, now, is it your right? Do you have the ability to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in free speech. However... Read Romans 13, 14, and 15. The key point about that is that even though we have the right and the liberty to behave behave in that way, for the sake of not causing an offense or a stumbling block for the other, we voluntarily restrict or limit our expression in order that we might have a voice in the life of the other. So when you think about that and the stuff that you share, like, or post online, be thinking about that. How would the person who disagrees with me politically receive this? Am I drawing them closer to the kingdom of God, or am I pushing them further away? Envying one another. Somebody once said that hell is someone else's vacation photos. You see, this, I was, maybe you guys saw this. We had a whole team in Israel recently. God bless them. I didn't get to go to Israel. They're seeing wonderful things. And every day I've opened up my Instagram or my Facebook, and I'm like, oh, God bless them. <laughs> They're so much happier than I am right now. They're in Israel, and I'm not. How is the way that you're using your social media and your technology creating situations for you to feel as though the life that God has currently given you is insufficient, is less than. Um, there's a solution to that. You, you, you don't, well, I'll let you sort that out. All right, remember the sermon in a nutshell for today? For the sake of your health and God's mission, observe how your technology is shaping you. Um, we touched on the God's mission part, Right? We want to be people who are not so tribal in our thinking and our posting and our communication, especially online or with our technology, that we simply just exist inside of an echo chamber and reduce everything else, everybody else, to just enemies or idiots. But how does it deal with our health? There's a growing body of research that suggests that smartphone usage in general, and especially social media usage in particular, causes unhappiness. Now, that's different than correlates with unhappiness, so let me show you what I mean. Um, There's a whole bunch of studies that were done. This is especially with youth. So they looked at 8th, 10th, and 12th graders who, if you've ever known a middle school or high school student, 
they're on their phone all the time. Here's what happened. This is a little bit tough to read, but this, this self-assessed, more likely to feel lonely. Right here in 2007, the iPhone was released, and look at what happened next. Now, this feels paradoxical. If you've got an iPhone that's connected to a social media account, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are your friends. So why are we feeling more lonely than ever before? Uh, Here's this study. Less likely to get enough sleep. Again, this is looking at middle and high school students. Right about the age that that cohort got their smartphones, they stopped sleeping as much. And we probably have seen all of the data around how much, especially high school students, need their sleep. So is this having negative health consequences? Um, Yeah. We have marked increases in self-reporting feelings of loneliness and feeling left out of things. There's an acronym, FOMO, fear of missing out. Um, It's done detrimental things to high schoolers' sleep. And then there was this study from University of Pennsylvania, a whole bunch of texts, but the upshot is is that they they took some and said, okay, you're the control group, keep using your smartphones as much as you'd like, whatever. Then we're going to take this other group and we're going to limit your Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat usage to 10 minutes a day, 30 minutes in total. They followed them for three weeks and it said that the limited use group showed significant reductions in loneliness and depression over three weeks compared to the control group. Both groups showed significant decreases in anxiety and fear of missing out over the baseline, suggesting the benefit of increased monitoring. They said it's still in its premature states, but we recommend that limiting social media use to approximately 30 minutes a day may lead to significant improvement in well-being. All right, uh, this is not just a young people issue either. Here's some, I, I'm so pumped on data. I hope you guys are following me here. This is, um, this is how much TV that we watch, broken down by age cohort. If you can't read it, basically you can see here that younger people here, your 12 through 25-year-olds, you can see that trend line going down. They're watching less live TV because why? They're on their phones more, Okay. Our older set, the 65-year-olds, you're holding strong. You're watching about 50 hours of TV a week. which means that if you're watching 20, some dude is out there watching 90. What is, that, what is that doing to our capacity to develop meaningful relationships and to live on mission for the kingdom of God? We're replacing all of the discretionary time that we could have. And I'm not just picking on old people or young people because I think, I mean, I looked at a lot of data trying to figure out like what are Americans doing in terms of screen time? And basically it's like, it's, it's constant. It's just all the time. Um, and, and my concern is, um, what's that old phrase? If the devil can't make you ungodly, he'll make you busy, right? You're just as ineffective for the kingdom of God sitting on the couch. Now, uh, what do I do? Um, I go to work each day, and I go home, and I pick up my kids, and I go to soccer practice, and I make dinner, and I put the kids in bed, and at that point, I've been functioning for someone else for about 16 or 18 hours that day. And what do I want to do? <laughs> Watch YouTube, Netflix, okay? That a degree of self-discipline to kind of go the extra mile, it's very difficult. Um, but I just want to raise our level of awareness, especially if you're younger here. The data seems to suggest that your smartphone usage, especially social media, isn't just correlating with your anxiety, sleep deprivation, and depression. It's actually causing it. 
So what are some suggested action steps? Uh, here's my first thing for you. I encourage you to turn off the notifications on your phone. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if you've got a smartphone, it will buzz because something goes on, right? Because of what? Because of FOMO, because of fear of missing out. Somebody just texted me. Somebody just emailed me. I've got to respond to that the right way. Okay, this puts your phone in the position of being your dictator who is allowed to be able to take your time and attention whenever it pleases to serve its ends. Flip the script. The phone is there to serve you, not you the phone. Okay? So just turn notifications off. Um, if you're anything like me, you're an office jockey, you've got laptop hands, and you're, like, you spend a lot of time writing email, okay? you know that you could spend your entire day responding to email, okay? and you can't get any work done. Same kind of thing. So segment portions of your day where you will respond to your notifications, but don't allow them to be able to fill up all of that empty space, all of that in-between time. Think about your behavior whenever you have to wait for a moment. All right, what do you do? You reach for your phone, okay? Just be more mindful of that. Turn off the notifications on your phone. Uh, grayscale your icons. Um, most of this, and the reason this is important is because the icons on our phones, the apps, they're engineered to create addictive patterns. Um, they play, they, um, what is it? They, they do brain scans on people playing Candy Crush. You know that little game? And then they do brain scans on people like playing slot machines, and it's like exactly the same dopamine set of chemicals that are going on in your brain. Like there's degrees of addiction that are being engineered into the way that we engage with some of these platforms. You can overcome that a little bit by grayscaling your items, your icons, so that your eye doesn't see them as being so catchy. Okay? If you're constantly opening your phone, you know this, right? There's probably about three apps that you use on your phone all the time. It's probably Instagram, Facebook, and email. Okay? If you're constantly doing that, go ahead and hide those apps in a folder that's somewhere else. You want to create one extra layer or barrier between you and constantly going into that deep little rabbit hole. Grayscale your icons. Um, Brightline some tech rules with your family. If you've got young kids like me, what's the most frequent fight in the house? Screen time. How much, what, when, where? Um, this is, again, I don't have any good answers here. I can tell you what my family does. We've just made a bright line that says you don't get to use electronics if there's school the next day. So that we've solved the whole, like, data, you know, they get right out of the car as they come home. What do they want to do? They want to hop on the iPad or they want to go on Netflix or whatever. No, that's not a fight that we're going to have anymore. So have some sort of bright line rules. It just makes it easier. You make one decision, no tech at the table, or no email after 6 p.m., or whatever that thing is. You've all seen the studies that's like, you should probably be putting your phone away about 30 minutes before you need to go to bed, the blue, you know, all that kind of stuff. Figure out some bright lines that you can agree upon as a family, and then hold each other accountable. It's nothing more embarrassing than when my six-year-old is like, Daddy, it's not electronic time. What are you doing on your computer right now? Prioritize real-life friendships. I have 800 people who are friends of mine on Facebook. That's such a lie. I have 800 people who have some passing acquaintance with me, but if I substitute what's in my feed for actually getting to know someone, I will be impoverished. The, I mean, all of the studies about what a successful, satisfied, and happy life, they all come back to whether or not you have meaningful work and meaningful relationships. And social media, a little bit like pornography, has substituted something meaningful and rich and personal and intimate to something pixelated and distant and anonymous. So don't let 
the social media feed become a replacement for a real life relationship. Make 2019 the year in which you identify two to four people, no more, in which you want to go deep with and make time for each other. And when you get there, what do you do? You put your phone away. You ever been in a conversation where there's a phone on the table? Just the very presence of it being there is making you a little itchy, isn't it? Because you know as soon as that thing lights up, where does the attention go? So keep it away. Okay? So prioritize your real-life relationships. And then this last thing, especially if you're a younger person. Uh, felt cute, might delete later. Um, that's a phrase that gets spoken when somebody takes a selfie. And what they're looking for is they're like pandering. They're looking for somebody to like the photo. And if it doesn't reach the right amount of likes, then they feel embarrassed that somehow they presented a version of themselves to the world that didn't get the amount of affirmation that they wanted from the Internet, which is not a kind place. And so what do you do? You go through this cycle of like, well, and so you curate. Okay, friends, your worth is not built on your follower count. It's not built on your likes. It's not built on your reach. It's not built on your influence. It's found in Christ. Again, legalism or the gospel. Social media has in some ways lured us into trying to present a very legalistic version of ourselves. Here's all of me doing good. A generation ago, we just assumed that was going on. Now we can broadcast it everywhere. I want to encourage you to not delegate who gets to define you and who gets to affirm you to Instagram. That's God's job. He's been doing a good job of it so far. And so if you're feeling that sense of like, I need someone to know that my child is cute, or that I'm doing something fun, or I'm eating this delicious meal, or that this coffee, it's okay to enjoy the moment and trust that Jesus still loves you, even if you're not the most popular person in your social network feeds. How is our technology shaping us in ways both incredible and detrimental? And so there is no... Um, there's no hoping for an age before the internet or smartphones or microwaves that we can talk to. Those are all great things. But we do want to raise our level of mindfulness. Just how is our tech shaping us? And how is it impacting our health? How is it commandeering our time? And what does it mean for God's mission and my ability to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in the years to come? I don't have all the answers, but I do want to raise this to you as a way to say that a faithful, a key part of your discipleship is going to be how you interact with the technology around you. Let's pray. Lord, help. Help. Um, I need, um, I recognize my own addiction to screens, how much I get nervous and unsettled not being around um, the stimulus that social media and my phone represents. Lord, help us. Um, as a people, just to reset our expectations, to reset our identity in you. Lord, we need you a lot. Um, help us to be people who are gracious in the online space. Help us to be people who are, who are thoughtful and respectful and humble and curious and empathetic and, and loving. We need you a lot, Jesus. Lord, draw us closer to you. Help us to walk in the Spirit so that we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. 
You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.